This morning's scripture reading is from the book of John, beginning in chapter 5 through 15. Jesus speaking to his disciples. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I probably should check if we're going to have snack time before I bring up snacks again in the future. Duly noted. Well, this morning we're going to be t- starting a couple weeks where we're taking a look at the life of the church in regards to the, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And so uh, there's so many texts we could look at, uh, so we chose the one from John 16 to have read, but just know that this is going to be a larger and broader uh, sermon where we take a look at the work of the Spirit across all the testimony of the Scriptures. I invite you, would you pray with me right now? Lord God, we pray that as we look to your word, as we hear uh, from this pulpit, Lord, we pray that the words of my mouth might be useful to your people. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we wouldn't be very Presbyterian if I didn't start off a, a, a sermon on the Holy Spirit with some reading from the Westminster Confession of Faith, right? So, uh, Westminster Confession, chapter 35, which if you go to the older historic uh, confessions, for some reason they just kind of uh, included the Holy Spirit as like a tagline in chapter 2 or 6 or of, the, of, the, of the Trinity, uh, but they didn't have any real clear expression of the role of the Holy Spirit. And so somewhere along the way we added chapter 35, and all of chapter 35 is addressing the, the presence, the person, and the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of, of the universe and, and, and in the life of the church as well. So chapter 35, 1 says, The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, proceeding from the Father and the Son, and of the same substance and equal in power and glory, is, together with the Father and the Son, to be believed in, loved, obeyed, and worshipped throughout all ages. Be blessed, Right? We know that those who wrote the confession did not speak like modern-day humans. They wrote like technical theologians, even almost like lawyers for theology. They wanted to make sure that each word in there was precise and understood and conveyed a very deep truth. Holy Spirit, third person in the Trinity, proceeding from the Father. Did you know that the East and West Church, the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic Church broke over what that means? that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father or proceeds from the Father and the Son. They literally divided a kingdom. There might have been a little geopolitical power structures in that too and some other location issues and some other money issues, but let's just pretend it's nice and simple. 
they broke over the filioque, whether or not the Holy Spirit comes from the Father alone or from the Father and the Son. Now, it also is kind of interesting to me that the church actually took these teachings seriously enough, as important enough, because I think if I were to describe the whole debate between what happens if the Spirit comes from the Father alone or the Father and the Son, you would go, okay. Some of you might find it interesting, and some of you might start looking at your watch and longing for the Eagles game coming this afternoon. But yet, it was apparently serious enough to divide over. Proceeding from the Father and the Son, of the same substance and equal in power. Whenever we get into philosophical conversations about substance, again, our culture is not built for those conversations anymore because we are so tactile, we're so tangible, we're so scientifically minded that we think of substance in a very tangible, tactile way that we start getting, as soon as we start talking about the metaphysical substance of God, again, we either say it's above my pay grade or outside of my interest. And I'm not here to chastise you if you feel that way. It's kind of, um, it's kind of a, a niche interest, a niche idea. So talking about the Holy Spirit, where do we start? And I would like to start with the scriptural witness. Genesis chapter 1 begins, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Before night and day were created, before God created the heavens and the earth, before God created land and water and animals and, and, and beasts and, human, and humanity, his spirit, his presence was hovering over the chaos, over the darkness. And there we start to see the, the seed of what God did and is doing in and through creation moving all the way forward to new creation, that God's presence is real, is felt, and is hovering over the darkness. He's not ignoring it. He's over the chaos. He's not denying it, but he's forming it, and he's shaping it, and he's molding it. And out of chaos, out of darkness, he formed light. He formed material. He formed order. He formed beauty. He formed a creation that as each step of the creation was written about poetically, it was good. And you know this. You know this when you woke up this morning and because of our propensity to really just love a nice sunny day, especially when we've been deprived of sun for just a, a short week here, we know that God's creation is indeed good. Was that a baby shower yesterday? It was a very different baby shower. It wasn't the one with a couple little games and some, some fruit trays and, and a bunch of diapers over in the corner. It was 250 people invited to something to the equivalent of a wedding reception. It was cool. It was different. And it had wonderful food. But they were celebrating life. And I realized that they were honoring the baby that was being born to them. But they took time to really cherish that new life and celebrate. And so many of their friends and family members that drove far and wide to come celebrate new life with them. We get it. We get that God's creation is good. And that is because his spirit, his presence, was hovering over the waters, hovering over the chaos, hovering over disorder to create order and beauty 
and goodness. This is where we begin with the Holy Spirit, God's presence. Now, the word in Hebrew, uh, I rarely do this, but it's kind of a fun one to say. You can feel free to do it at home if you like. You know, ruach. You got to get that weird H thing. That's why it's fun to say, I think. Ruach. It means often it's the presence and spirit of God. But it can also regularly mean uh, wind. It can also be talked about and spoken of as breath. And so if you think about that, what do all those uses of this word have in common? It's an expression of power. It's an expression of presence and power. We, we don't see the wind, right? But we see its effect. It moves. It's felt. It does. It's active. Take a deep breath with me. You feel the power of breath. Oftentimes in the ancient communities, uh, there are two different things that you would liken life to. Blood was a, was a source of life, but also breath was the source of life. Even so much that when, when Jesus um, met in, the, in a locked room with his disciples after his resurrection, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. As I was studying this, I have read John, I can't even tell you how many times I've read the Gospel of John. And I never noticed that in chapter 20. Jesus breathes on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So there is absolutely tie into this idea that God's presence is like the wind. Unseen and yet present. Unseen but powerful. Unseen but a moving energy. What is God's spirit? It's his personal presence. God's personal presence involved in what he's doing, where he's doing it, and how he's moving. Just as wind is unseen, God's presence is unseen. God's spirit is one that we cannot harness or take captive or farm or predict. God's spirit is not something that is under our control. God's spirit is not in the vending machine of spirituality, is it? God is not a Rubik's Cube where we can start to just, just do the right movements and all of a sudden God's spirit, it's not a genie lamp that we can rub three times and the spirit comes out, no. So where did God's spirit move? We looked again to the Old Testament. One of the first times that God's spirit came upon somebody, we look in later in Genesis when Joseph, Joseph who was in prison, Joseph who was in prison for righteous sake by not committing wrongdoings, uh, the Pharaoh was looking for someone to help interpret a dream. And they said, the Spirit of God is on this prisoner. Interesting? God's presence. God's active presence is on this prisoner. It can be seen because he understands dreams. And so he was called before Pharaoh to, to predict and to understand and to interpret the dream for Pharaoh. Ultimately leading later on for his people's salvation when the famine hit and they came down to Egypt. Uh, Bezalel is another one. When the people were being taken out of Egypt, and they were now in the wilderness, and God was wanting to form the tabernacle, which was the precursor to the temple. The tabernacle where God's presence was going to be among the people, where God was going to make his space, his holy place, where he would meet with the people to forgive their sins and give them guidance and direction and to lead them from. He was building the tabernacle, and so he gifted this man, this craftsman, with, with creative genius. Again, in Genesis, you can see in chapter 31, 35, that he was credited that the Spirit of God came upon him. Ultimately, we can see in the Old Testament that God, the Spirit of God came upon the prophets. 
And the prophets were given spiritual insight into history so that they might see what's going on from a perspective that God wants them to see. From a God-shaped God's uh, God vision, the Spirit of God came upon. Not everybody could just sign up to be a prophet, and not every word from a prophet was prophecy. Again, I know you know this, but prophecy is not merely predicting the future. In fact, it's very little job is predicting the future, but it's speaking, this is what the Lord says today. This is the Lord's take on the situation we're in. Do this, and this will be the outcome. Do that, and this will be the outcome. Know that God sees you. Know that God hears you. Know that God may judge you for a season, but he will redeem you. This is the word of the prophet because they see that things are going back away from good creation and order and beauty and love back towards chaos and violence and disorder. The prophets are speaking the word of the Lord to challenge the disorder amongst the people. God's Ruach created good things in a beautiful world, but humans gave in to evil and unleashed a new type of chaos that broke it, that broke the goodness of creation. So now God's spirit is hovering over still. Remember the chaos of Genesis 1? He's hovering over the chaos of humanity and creation and the universe. But the prophets are pointing to a day the prophets were pointing to a day. They called it the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord was coming. What was this day of the Lord? It's when God would renew his covenant with his people. God would renew the creative work of making beauty and order and goodness and love. And he would abolish and, and dismantle chaos and pain and suffering and evil. They were pointing to the day that we know we know now is when Jesus came. When God came down and dwelt among us. So we have this, uh, this kind of evolving picture of God from the very beginning of the spirit of God that hovers over the deep. To now we have a God who has a presence in the heavenly realm and a physical presence on earth in Christ Jesus and then a spiritual realm. And our text this morning talks about this. It gives me good comfort that the, that the disciples, after three years of walking with Jesus, uh, did not know everything yet. That there is so much more to be known. It reminds me a little bit of uh, uh, the line, you can't handle the truth. There's so much more to be hear, heard here. Jesus said, I have much more to say to you. More than you can now bear. Listen, guys, there's so much more that Jesus has for us, but there's more than we can handle. Take comfort in that today, that even as much as you may know about the scriptures or know about how God works, we are just scratching the tip of the iceberg. We are only seeing the, the, a small little amount. We can only comprehend just a, a, a seemingly insignificant amount to the eternity of who God is and how he's created and how he loves I have much more for, to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, the personal presence of God, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. I love the synergy, the, 
the connectedness between the three persons of the, of the Godhead. They don't have their own singular agenda. They are not at war with each other, yet they're in conversation with each other. They, they represent each other in different facets and, and manifestations. And, and to be honest, as soon as you ever start to say, well, the Trinity is like, you are dangerously close to creating a, a heresy about the church. There's all these metaphors. I love it when we try to help children understand uh, the, the, the Trinity. Well, it's like a candle. You have the wax, and then you have the flame, and then you have the vapor. Except that's a heresy called modalism. You see, because they're distinct persons of the Trinity, they aren't just different modes of the Trinity. It's not that the God the Father morphs into God the Son and then morphs into God the Spirit. Because when Jesus was on the cross, the Father was in heaven and the Spirit was doing what the Spirit does because we know in a little bit that it is the power of the Spirit who raises Jesus from the dead. He reclaims Jesus' livingness among people by the work of the Spirit. So did Jesus do it? Yes. Did the Holy Spirit do it? Yes. Did the Father do it? Yes. Is it all one morph? No? Yes? Okay. It gets confusing. This is why monotheistic religions, who, when we try to share our faith with other monotheists, they sometimes get stuck on the idea that we don't worship three gods. Because we do have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it's one God. And eventually, we just get to a point where we just accept it, don't we? Have you ever sat around and reminded, been trying to figure out the Trinity and just gotten yourself a good old-fashioned theological headache? I have, and I've hit that wall enough times that I'm content knowing that's a wall that I may never fully cross. And every so often, I go back to look at because I think it's beautiful. A mystery that I don't understand, but I don't give up on it because I can't understand it. Because some things are what? Not meant for us fixed and finite people to completely understand. Jesus said, I have more for you, more than you can now bear. And I take comfort that Jesus has enough for me today, more for me tomorrow, but there's more out there, more than I can even bear. Not only does that comfort me, but it situates me. When we come to this point where we recognize that we don't have to answer every question definitively. We don't have to know every detail. Now, some of you are starting to get that little, that little tenseness raising up in your shoulders of like, no, but, but I want to know. I was there too. And I'm not saying giving yourself over to a blind, fideistic kind of faith where, oh, whatever it is, I'll just go along with the tribe. But there are boundaries, aren't there, to our abilities. There's boundaries to our time limits. There's boundaries to our our perspective, because we are limited 21st century beings here and where we are. So I encourage you to understand that God's presence is here to explain and to help us to understand and to reveal. But it's so much more than that. And it's not just about us knowing that which we long and desire to know. You see, God's spirit came and empowered Jesus. He came down and dwelt and walked among us, but then he was raised a carpenter's son. He was raised a normal child that did normal child things and normal teenager things. He learned a craft. I'm jealous because I am terrible woodworker. I can ruin just about any project I work on. And yet Jesus was a craftsman. 
And of course, we'd like to make Jesus into a super craftsman, that everything he did had to have been better. Why? Because he's Jesus and we're not. But that's not the point of the incarnation, that he was a unique, superior human to us. But it was that he, just like you and just like me, had family, probably sibling squabbles. He had to learn how to use a chisel, a hammer, a plane. He had to do work. His muscles fatigued. He got tired. He learned his Torah. He learned his scriptures. He prayed to the Lord. He was waiting for his time to come. And then his mother, remember, his mother said, oh, we need more wine at the party. Go do the thing that I know you can do. We have no idea if that was like a natural household project. I don't know what. How did Mary know that that's what he could do? We don't know. But he began his ministry. And then he goes to see his cousin. His cousin who is uh, making waves out there in the wilderness, calling people to repent. Because why? The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of new creation life. The day of the Lord that the prophets spoke to for centuries was, John the Baptist was saying it was now. It was coming. Get prepared. Get ready. And so Jesus went to him. And he was baptized. He was baptized into this new repentance, this new life, this this kingdom anticipation. But what happened when Jesus was baptized? A dove, the Holy Spirit, God's presence, came down upon him like a dove. And thus began Jesus' ministry, where he heals people, where he forgives their sins, where he restores the sinners, where he commands the spirits, where he raised the dead. You see, Jesus, through the Spirit of God, is now creating life where there was once death. That's why when the Holy Spirit came down upon him, um, Jesus was given the task. He went to the synagogue and he read the scripture about that the Spirit of God was now among them. And they were given tasks to proclaim victory. They were to proclaim healing sight to the blind, freedom to the captives. They were to proclaim that the the spirit of the Lord and the year of Jubilee had begun, that this new creation life had now started. This was the kingdom news that Jesus brought. But it came after the spirit of God came down upon him. It's pretty amazing, pretty interesting to see that Jesus, like, like the same spirit that hovered over the darkness, was now living and manifesting himself through people, through being. Jesus was creating life where there was once death through his earthly ministry. And people could see that there was an authority that he had. Remember, he was the one who could walk on the water. We can't do that. The Spirit must have held him up. He was the one who could wake up from a slumber when all the professional fishermen were in a boat and were freaking out and look at the the wind and the waves and say, be still. And the waves quieted. He was the one that could look out and tell the, 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 the beasts and the demons to be calm or to leave. He, Jesus was creating life where there was once death. Even after the opposition had killed Jesus, 
That spirit was not gone. That spirit was not dead. And it was the spirit of God that raised Jesus victorious. Raised him victorious over death and into life. So this is the beginning of the new creation. This is the beginning of the day of the Lord. This is the beginning of God's hovering spirit creating again something new. And now we think about that. Before you became a Christian, were, are you pretty much the same physical body, the same physical being? Sure. But we look at Ephesians 2, where the Gentiles are being brought near to God, and those who were already near to God, the Jews, they're being taken out of their old customs and old covenant and being brought into a new humanity. That's what God promises us, that in Christ, we are alive. In Christ, we are new. In Christ, we are adopted. In Christ, we are made whole. In Christ, we begin the new, new creation living. This is what came down at Pentecost. Jesus went into that room before Pentecost and told, the, told his disciples. He breathed on them, received the Holy Spirit. And he then told them on top of the mountain as he left and saying, wait in Jerusalem, for there is one coming. Wait in Jerusalem. And then on Pentecost, 40 days later, the Spirit of God came upon them like fire, like, like flames of fire over their heads. And they came out at nine in the morning speaking the goodness and grace and good news and victory of Jesus that he was alive and that he was well and that he started the day of the Lord and that God's new presence was among them. And everybody heard them what? In their own tongue, in their own vernacular, in their own language. They were speaking and praising God and people heard them in their dialect and they said they must be drunk. I'll just be honest, I was not good at languages. I come from a family who is good at languages. Somehow that was just left out for me. Give me that wine. Find me that wine that allows me to speak multiple different languages. I will drink that wine and be happy. But that's not what it was, was it? No, it was the Spirit of God pouring out on the Acts 2 community. But just know this, that same Spirit is still active and present Today, That same spirit, when you are feeling a tugging of the heart to, to be drawn near to God, or you're feeling a peace of God after confession, when you hear a peace that, that you know you are loved and seen, that you know you are seen and accepted, you know you are accepted and forgiven, you are forgiven and sent out that you went from being an enemy of God and now are a friend and an ambassador of his goodness? How did that all turn around? Because the spirit from 2,000 years ago is still the same spirit today. When you have a moment in the quietness of your prayer closet and you feel God's presence, he's active. When you're singing and lifting up songs and hymns and you feel a, a, a weird sense of euphoria, it's not just chord structure. It's the presence of the Lord. When we pray together and we say amen, it is true. We are calling on the promises of God because he is here and among us. Through the filling and indwelling of the Spirit of God, the early church and we to this day learn how to truly live. There's a phrase at the end of the letter to Timothy that talks about how the wealthy 
uh, in the church need to be generous because as they are generous and learn to give, learn to give out of their uh, security, learn to give out of their pleasure, learn to give out of, out of their, uh, their blessings and bounty, that is how they take hold of the life that is truly life. I love that phrase. I love that phrase because as we learn to live in the life of the Spirit, as we learn to live in the following Jesus and the truth of God's word, we take hold of that life that is truly life. One where we experience real community with each other in a world that's longing for real friendships and connection. One where we have friendships that by all rights should be dead and gone, but they are healed and restored. Where, where God's spirit pours out and gives us a love for our neighbor that is uncommon in a world that says, look out for yourself. When we actually get to that threshold and, and pinnacle place where we not only pray for our enemies, but we love them and we sacrifice and we give to them and for them and we seek their blessing and good rather than their judgment and shame. When we live in a way that subverts the empire of the day, when we give up for us, it would be giving up uh, a lot of commercial ideas about that which is good and the good life. When we give up a lot of manufactured ideas of success and beauty and power and youthfulness, and we don't choose to pursue that which is fleeting and empty and even corrosive. You see, we saw, for the past three weeks, we heard about how Jesus' new life in the new community in Colossae caused a family to have to live a different way, caused a house church to actually live in a way that subverted the empire around it and did not share in its values anymore, but undid them, not through violence, not through power plays, not through political power and pressure or laws, but through love, forgiveness, and restoration. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing and is continuing to do and is doing among us today. Together with them, we share the good, in the good news and we learn how to live by this new creation work of God. The Spirit is still present and active, hovering over our dark places, whether it's in our dark places of our own hearts. But sometimes we look around this world and we see nothing but darkness here and there. We see, a, if you turn on the, go to the headlines and we just hear all the worst things that are happening. Well, I'm just going to be honest. Are we in the worst era of humanity ever? I'm going to say probably not. Is our country so broken that we're in the worst place we've ever been? No, because we're not actively in a civil war with each other. We've had worse days. Don't believe the fact that we have easy access to cheap stories that are real, that are painful, that that is the condition that the whole world is falling apart and where is God? No, God is present. For every bad story you hear, you don't hear of the hundreds of stories of God's grace. For every person who does something wicked and evil, it just reminds us why the Holy Spirit is actually present and hovering over the darkness. For every bad and wicked story we hear that we think is broken, it's not a call to get out to in the country so we can avoid humanity. It's a call to go in and love them. It's a call to go into the prisons. It's a call to go into the city. It's a call to go where people are. And yes, it might cost you a little piece of what Americans will call the good life. But I want to challenge us. If we forsake the American good life but, but, but tap into the Spirit's good life, 
Is that not an upgrade? Is that not a trade worth trading? Is that not a gift worth receiving? I hope so. I want to close a little bit with uh, just thinking about how the Holy Spirit is present. In our EPC Essentials page, the Holy Spirit has come to glorify Christ and to apply the saving work of Christ into our hearts. He convicts us of sin and draws us to the Savior. Indwelling our hearts, he gives new life to us, empowering and imparts gifts to us for service. He instructs and guides us in all truth and seals us for the day of redemption. You are not alone. I'm going to say that again. In this Christian life, you are not alone. Not only did God give you a church, look around you, this is your church. Now look around you further, look past these walls. There are many churches that God is working in and through. We are not in any form of competition to attract people to come to our church versus another church. We are all one organism of God's beautiful tapestry. God's beautiful new creation that he's working out. We are not in competition with each other. That is a lie from the evil one. But we have a Holy Spirit who is with us, who is going to glorify Jesus by applying the saving work of Christ to us. He's going to glorify Jesus by convicting us of our sin, while also drawing us into the presence of the Savior so that we might see the beauty of a God who loves us. He's, he's present by indwelling our hearts and filling us and claiming us and sealing us for the day of redemption, guaranteeing our inheritance that we have in Christ. And he gives us new life, not old life. He gives us new life, not chaotic and dying life. He empowers and imparts gifts to us, which we'll talk about a little bit next week. Why? For service and for glory and for redemption. He will guide us into all truth. This is the Spirit of God who created the heavens and the earth and said it was good and is now dwelling among us and hovering over and indwelling and filling us so that we might be foretastes of the full kingdom yet to come. We don't have to always see it, right? In the same way that we don't always see the wind, but we feel its effects. May we receive the breath of God today and be renewed again and filled with the Spirit. May we know that he's present in our lives, even when we don't know it or see it or feel it. And may we trust that he's leading us towards a life that is taking hold of that which is truly life. Amen? Lord, I pray that you would be with us, that you would fill us, that you would help us to cherish that which you've called us to do. Lord, we love you and ask that you would help us to see. Help us to see how you hover over the darkness and you transform and you, you guide. And Lord, help us to be people who proclaim good news to the poor and freedom to the prisoners. May we bring health and life and sight to the blind and set the oppressed free as you bring about your kingdom today and tomorrow. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.